Thank you very much for that lengthy reading. I really feel for Moses in that chapter. I don't know about you, but he's up the mountain, he's down the mountain, he's up the mountain, he's down the mountain. If he had a Fitbit on, I wonder how many steps <laughs> he would have put in that day. And I, and I kept remembering that, um, that uh, nursery song, you know, the bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain, and then he went back over the mountain, and then he went back over. And I really feel for Moses uh, there. So um, if you want to keep your Bibles open, again, I'm sorry, I don't know the page, uh, to chapter 19 of Exodus. I'm actually going to focus just on the first eight verses. You might be really relieved to hear. Um, but it was great to get that full picture uh, of what happened at Mount Sinai. Now, I wonder if you, I'm sure you have, heard of the phrase, that's a turning point. That's a turning point, because it refers to something that is, um, it happens at a critical point, and it completely alters the direction and course of events. And in the Bible, we could no doubt identify many obvious turning points, but just immediately came to mind as I was thinking about this, uh, was the, uh, the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, the fall of Adam and Eve. That was a real turning point, wasn't it? Then we obviously the birth of Jesus was a major turning point in the course of history, not just in the Bible. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus was another one, just to name but three in the Bible. Then historically, we had perhaps um, Martin Luther in the 1500s going to the, uh, to the cathedral at Württemberg and nailing his theses on the door, 95 of them. And that triggered the Reformation and, if you like, birthed the Protestant church of which we're members. Medically, the discovery of vaccines and antibiotics, and thank God for the COVID vaccine uh, that many of us have had that have changed the course of that pandemic. Politically, 1955 maybe, Rosa Parks taking that seat on the bus in Montgomery, a turning point in the civil rights movement in the USA. Some might argue, of course, that battle is still being fought, but that was a real turning point in it. 9-11, the terrorist attacks, our world feeling not, not so safe anymore. And of course, as I've already alluded to, the recent pandemic and lockdowns, very current in our thinking with the inquiry going on. I'm sure you can think of many more, and you might argue with some of mine. Apparently, the, uh, the collective noun for a group of historians is a disagreement of historians. So feel free to disagree with me. I will take it positively. And you can probably think of turning points in your lives, too. Um, mine, I've had a really recent one. I've just, my daughter's just had what is our first grandchild. And that feels like our whole family dynamic will not be the same again because we have this little one as part of our family. And that's a long-awaited little one too. And as I mentioned, uh, COVID was a turning point for me personally because that was just when um, the Archdeacon invited me to think about changing my role from being an OLM at St Paul's in Camberley uh, and becoming his assistant Archdeacon. Now, why am I talking about all this? Well, you may have guessed, you might be way ahead of me, but Exodus 19 verses 1 to 8 are seen as a major turning point by Old Testament scholars. Why? Well, because absolutely nothing was ever the same afterwards. 
The reading, Exodus 19, is at the very centre of the book of Exodus. And it's a pivotal point in the narrative. The significance of that moment is underlined by the first words in the chapter in verse 1. On that very day... It says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites had left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert in Sinai. And that's a small phrase which we might so very easily have overlooked. But since, as we know, there are no superfluous words in the Bible, it's important. And what it means is, look out, there's something important coming up to take note of. Because in essence... This is when this kind of raggle-taggle bunch of whinging, escaping slaves is formed into a community. And it's not just any old community. It's a community created by God. And it's based solely on their faithfulness to his command. It's the moment, the actual moment, when God creates a nation for himself. Amazing. Moses' mountaintop experience was powerful and overwhelming. It was a turning point for him and for the people he was leading. But how could it be important for us? Why is it so important now, thousands of years later? We're going to dig a little deeper into those eight verses now to find out. Now, the Israelites have been out in the desert for a couple of months in Egypt. They're out there, they're out, and they're out of Egypt, rather, and they're in the desert, and they're camped in front of Mount Sinai at the bottom. And that mountain, as we heard right through the chapter, is the context for all that follows. And it's seen as a place where... Heaven touches earth and where humans make contact with God. Very clearly, as we heard about the thunder and the cloud and and God meeting with Moses in it at the top of the mountain. It's this thin place where heaven and earth are close. And in verse 3, we hear that Moses goes up the mountain and there God meets him in words of command and of sovereign power. And God reminds Moses about how he, God, has released them from bondage in Israel and how he's carried them onwards as if on eagles' wings. Now, that eagle image is a very strong one. Eagles are powerful birds. They dominate all the wildlife around them. They are regal in a way. But also there's another side to eagles. They are nurturing and protective of their young. So it's a well-chosen image representing God who has liberated the people by his power and now he is protecting and nurturing them as they travel through the desert, eventually, of course, to reach the promised land many years later. But don't miss those words at the end of verse 4. Because we're not really thinking about a geographical destination that God's bringing them to. Their destination is not this mountain or the promised land. Their destination is a person. 
God says, I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. Their exodus was from one master, which was Pharaoh, to a new master, who is God. And that's really terribly exciting. Well, it was to me when I was thinking about it. Maybe not so much to you, but now we do get to the exact turning point of this Exodus narrative in verses 5 and 6. God speaking. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then suddenly... The generous God, the manna-providing, liberating God of Exodus has suddenly become a demanding God of Sinai. Israel's very future depends on whether or not they are prepared to keep covenant with God. Because God wants his people to become a community of covenant with special status as his treasured possession over all the other nations in the earth. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then, says the Lord, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here we have God marrying both political and sacred elements in the new community he's creating. Israel's going to occupy a position of both sacred significance, because they're going to be priestly and holy, and also political authority as a kingdom and as a nation. And that's something they've never experienced before. Far from it, actually. They were slaves with no power and no authority when they were in Egypt. And of course, God has previously made covenants in, uh, recounted in the Bible. He made a covenant with Noah not to uh, destroy the earth anymore, symbolized, of course, by the rainbow. And then with Abraham, God covenanted to be his God and that of his descendants. And the symbol of that was their obligation to be circumcised as a symbol of their consecration to God. But those were with individuals. And now he's making a covenant with a whole nation. And it's conditional, not a one-sided God's giving it all covenant. Everything depends on Israel's willingness to, to listen to God moment by moment and to keep their part of the deal it's not a one-off like being circumcised it's a lifelong demand from God to be in right relationship with him Israel's got to be totally consecrated to him must live by his rules and serve his purposes and only if they keep their side of the bargain will God keep his to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Only then will they have the privilege of enjoying this special sacred significance and the political authority. But if they stop obeying, if they don't keep covenant, if they presume in any way on their special status, then in that very moment they will forfeit everything. That's why verses 5 and 6 are so extraordinary. Never in the whole of history up till then, never had one people occupied such a position in the world. It's a true turning point. The mountaintop is not ordinary. 
God isn't ordinary and now his people are not ordinary either. And so good old Moses goes back down the mountain to his people waiting there at the foot and they agree unanimously to keep their side of the covenant and they pledge their loyalty to God. And lastly, in the bit of passage I've chosen to look at today in verse 8, off goes Moses back up Mount Sinai to give the people's answer to God. Unanimous, yes. And in that moment, this new nation was born into the world. Of course, as we know, nothing was straightforward and everything goes to pot pretty quickly after that. And I'm sure you'll find that out soon enough as you carry on going through the book of Exodus. But in that moment, we have this new nation. So we're going to leave that newborn nation of Israel now at the foot of the mountain because I want to spend just a few minutes thinking about the significance and the implications of this covenant made thousands of years ago for us, for this church, for us as believers, as a community of people who've given our allegiance to God. What does it mean to be a priestly kingdom and a holy people? in today's church. What does it mean for us to be priestly, holy, a kingdom and God's people? Well, to answer that question, we can turn to the first letter of Peter in the New Testament, where he describes what the early Christian church should be like. And he actually echoes the words of this Sinai covenant. Peter writes, as you come to him, the living stone, who is Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And that's in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. As believers... And as followers of Christ, we are chosen. That's who we are, like Israel was. And just by the way, that doesn't make us some kind of elite. It doesn't make us a cut above everybody else. It's always about God. It's never about us. But we are his special possession, though. Chosen by him. And very, very precious to him and remember this too God does not choose the wise the noble or the mighty who does he choose the weak <laughs> the despised even the foolish Phew, that's reassuring isn't it do you feel weak despised and foolish this morning because if you do great because you're the ones that God is choosing right now. And those are the sorts of people that Jesus spent his time with, leading by example. So despite the fact that we are foolish, weak and despised, we are still a royal priesthood. But we're priests not of a physical place, such as the temple in the Old Testament days. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, are we not? And Apostle Paul underlines that in 1 Corinthians 6. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, not a physical place, but a spiritual one. 
And we're a holy nation, says Peter. What does that mean? Well, we're believers whom Christ gathers from all nations to be one people who follow Christ. And the grace that restored the sinful nation of Israel over and over and over again when they fell flat on their face and lost the plot, the grace that restored them is the same grace available to us and the same grace that brings us into intimacy of fellowship with God. Holiness is not achieved by our own efforts, by striving, by outward washing with water or by rituals, or trying so hard to be good. Holiness is achieved by inward cleansing of our hearts by God's Holy Spirit as we just come to him in humility and turn our lives over to Jesus on a daily basis. And that brings an inward holiness from that relationship with God. Okay, that's who we are then. Who are we? Chosen, royal, holy folks. What are we? Chosen, royal and holy through our relationship with Jesus and his grace towards us. And not forgetting, of course, that we're all so foolish, weak and despised in human terms. Okay, if that's true, and I hope you agree that it is, this is my first challenge of just two today. Do we behave like this? Or do our behaviours and our attitudes reflect that? Priests are consecrated and set apart from God's, for God's work, as Heather will be, formally, at the service in the cathedral in a couple of weeks' time. But as a holy royal priesthood, a priesthood of all believers, do we live that set-apartness and that consecratedness, do, if that's a word, do we live that out? Because if we don't live like we're set apart, then we're going to inevitably start just to gently and gradually blend in with the values of the world around us, and we'll be no different to anyone else. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel when they drifted away from God. So the challenge is, are we maintaining a close enough relationship with God keeping short accounts when we stray from obeying his commands and keeping to his ways. God called his people in verse 5 to obey him fully. That means we can't just pick and choose the bits that we like to keep to and pretend we don't know or just put, us, put aside the rest. We obey him fully. And we're chosen to be his people to bring the message of the good news of Jesus to the all the world. So perhaps this passage can just prompt us to take a look at the way we're living, to see if we are living in the way that God expects from his chosen people, his desired holy nation, to play our part in witnessing to the good news of Jesus. Secondly, do we hold a high enough view of what it means to be part of this church, the church of Christ, the holy nation, if you like. We're not just a religious association of people who happen to come here on a Sunday morning to tick the holiness box by coming to church and that's it for the rest of the week, or we shouldn't be, because we should be so much more than that in every way. We should be a community of people who are bound together in unity of our shared belief. 
just as closely as we're united to God as individuals. So do we do our utmost to maintain our love for one another and keep unity with one another in Christ? I'm afraid I don't know anything about your church beyond the fact that it's a lovely church and you seem very nice people so I'm not saying this to you out of any knowledge background knowledge or agenda so don't take it that way but do we do our utmost to maintain our love for one another and keep in unity with one another or are we prone to grumbling and undermining what God wants to do in enlarging his kingdom here in Woking I don't think people would want to join a church that was known for being grumblers and moaners. I don't think so. But who wouldn't be attracted to a church that, whose defining characteristic is love for one another and love for God? Wouldn't it be wonderful? That's what St. Mary of Bethany, the chat around here, if that's what it was. This is a church where people care for one another. They're amazing. Their love, it just shines out from them. That would be wonderful. They love the community, all the things they do in the community. That would be the way to be known, wouldn't it? So might there just be attitudes that you might need to bring into the light, that attitudes aren't very nice attitudes, grumbling, moaning, lack of love, lack of forgiveness, do you need to bring something into the light of God's love and turn away from it, repent of it, if you like, in order that the church here can grow because of the knowledge of your love for one another? So those are just the two main thoughts I'm going to leave with you to ponder. In the light of what we've heard from Exodus this morning, do we have a high enough view of what it means to belong to a kingdom of priests? And do we have a high enough view of what it means to be part of a chosen people, a holy nation, in other words, members of God's church? So if I may, I'll lead us in a moment of prayer along those lines before we close. Holy Father, Lord God Almighty, we thank you that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. We thank you for your covenant made with Moses and his people all those thousands of years ago and still with us, made with us today. And Father, if there are any ways in which we are falling short of being set apart, any ways we're blending in with what the world says and the world expects when we should be different and distinctive because we're people of God. If there's any ways we do that, in the silence of our hearts, we bring that to you now and we say sorry. And we ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we pray your blessing on this church, St. Mary's of Bethany. Lord, we pray your blessing on us as a chosen people, a holy nation. And we pray that that's what this place will be known for 
outside of the four walls of the church and help us when we're out and about or whether we're in here on a Sunday or at other times to share your love with one another and be together, united in purpose of following you. And we ask that not for our own self, not out of any strength of ours, but we ask it for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.